Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented on the 22nd of January, 2019, by Julian Komen, Joint Opinion Editor for The Guardian. The lecture was given as part of the Ushaw Lecture Series and is entitled, Home is Where We Start From, The Politics of Place. What follows is really uh, my journalistic reflections on what are, to say the least, turbulent times. In the early 1980s, I fell in love with a German television series which was broadcast, if I remember rightly, every Friday night on BBC Two. Heimat, <coughs> presented as a chronicle in 11 parts, was made by the renowned filmmaker Edgar Wright. It told the 20th century story of one village in a rural, very beautiful part of Germany called the Hunsruck, where Wrights grew up. Coming from Knaresborough, I always thought of the Hunsruck as a kind of German North Yorkshire. But this was no Teutonic version of All Creatures Great and Small. Wright's 15 and a half hour film, released in 1984, was remarkable in its ambition. With poetic realism, it told the story of a fictional village called Shabach from 1918 to 1982. Wrights had previously made a documentary entitled Tales from Hunsruck Villages, based on interviews he made while traveling the region. Heimat was the artistic consummation of that project. The film's narrative takes in the bitter aftermath of the First World War, the rise of Hitler and the Second World War, and the post-war Wirtschaftswunder, or economic miracle. We see technical progress transform the lives of the villages, radio, cinema, cars, colour television. Heimat culminates in an episode entitled The Feast of the Living and the Dead. At the climax, Maria, the matriarchal figure born at the turn of the century, who we follow from girlhood to the end of her life, gathers together the other characters we have seen live and die in Shabbat. From a room bathed in heavenly light, they gaze out fondly as the living drunkenly celebrate the annual festival of All Souls Day. In Heimat, Wright produced what one might call a Gemeinschaft classic. The idea of Gemeinschaft, or community, Gemein means common, was developed by the great German sociologist Ferdinand Ternis who, in 1887, wrote Gemeinschaft und Gesellschaft, sometimes translated as community and society, but I think better rendered as community and association. What distinguishes Ternus's two Gs from each other? Gemeinschaft is woven from human ties which are not chosen by us, but which, as it were, constitute us. Family, the place where we are born, the traditions and habits to which its inhabitants become accustomed. 
The sense of belonging that in fact comes from a relative absence of choice rather than the exercise of it. Such belonging implies dense social bonds and close neighbours, a familiarity and trust in everyday life, a kind of existential security that doesn't have to be thought about too hard. Gemeinschaft relations reproduce themselves through time and in time. They are, in a certain sense, because they have been. Gesellschaft is about what we, as individuals, choose. Its paradigmatic form is the contract, the formal agreement made in accordance with rules that can, in principle, reach far beyond the immediate locality. Its starting point is the individual, rational, self-interested will, and its conceptual horizon is the universal, the free cooperation of wills according to rational rules for specific ends. Of course, what we have here are two ideal types, not two completely different social forms. These are two ways of being with each other that always coexist. But smaller places with denser social ties are likely to exemplify more Gemeinschaft-like qualities. And big cities are more likely to offer the risks, freedoms and rewards of Gesellschaft. But these are differences of degree. Turner's goal was not to argue for one over the other, but to conceptually distinguish between the two in order to train a lens on the development of modern capitalism, which he described as the most distinct of the many phenomena represented by the sociological concept of Gesellschaft. Running through the pages of Community and Association, there is a concern that the impersonal, contractual, rules-bound way of being together, which was transforming European economy and society, as he wrote, was steadily extending the reach of capitalist market relations into areas that used to be informal or governed by habit and custom. Turney's fears that rational will embedded in an enlightenment framework of liberal individualism and a market economy can undermine the Gemeinschaft dimension to our lives, whose very givenness helps us feel at home in the world. Something of this creeps in towards the end of Heimat. Maria's unhappy and alienated son, Ernst Simon, who was most carefree in his youth when he was learning to fly planes far above Shabak, becomes one of the villains of Reich's series. Simon cons some of the villagers into selling the valuable and beautiful traditional furnishings which had been in their homes for generations. In return, he gives them fashionable but overpriced and shoddy modern stuff that falls apart. There could be few greater crimes in Shabbat. The spirit of these scenes was, I think, channeled straight from Ferdinand Turney's by rights. I loved Heimat's reverent celebration of a community across time. And, to my cost, I rhapsodized about it at one of my first meetings with a woman who was to become one of the big intellectual influences in my life. Professor Gillian Rose, a brilliant and at times extremely frightening political philosopher, 
was my supervisor during my MA year and beyond at Sussex University. As I waxed lyrical and romantic about Wright's beautiful evocation of place, belonging, and times passing, her brow darkened in a way that I was to recognize as signifying big trouble. Rose mentioned the sad fate of Apollonia, a dark-skinned girl made unwelcome in Shabbat on the grounds of alleged promiscuity. And then, much more seriously, she pointed out the great lacuna in Heimat. In Reitz's sweeping 15-hour narrative, the Holocaust is barely touched upon. Other than a few fleeting references and the expropriation of a jeweler in a nearby town, the fate of the Jews in Nazi Germany remains pretty much unthematized. Reitz, in a double sense, presents the rural villages of Sleepy Shabbach as innocent. Artistically speaking, Rose left me in no doubt that Wrights culpably avoids the dark side of community. Turner's concept of Gemeinschaft was subjected to a similar critique in the latter half of the 20th century. Tainted by association with the racialized Volksgemeinschaft of Nazi Germany, for a long time, it was almost taboo, taboo in German academia, although that was less true elsewhere. More generally, romantic notions of community became deeply unfashionable in the post-war period, when, in the West, a new liberal order governed by supranational institutions was set up to enmesh future folks in a network of international obligations the EU, Bretton Woods, and so on. But following the crash of 2008, which exacerbated tendencies already there as a result of globalization, what was repressed has returned in virulent form. Gemeinschaft politics run like a thread through Brexit and the rise of xenophobic nationalism in Italy, Poland, Hungary, and elsewhere. In the provincial towns of Europe, which are at the center of this counter-revolution, the rootless cosmopolitan banker and the African migrant are presented as twin enemies to the integrity of home. From Matteo Salvini in Italy to Viktor Orban in Hungary, leaders have emerged to defend the innocent community from financial swindlers and foreign value. This resurgence of nativism and nationalism has been condemned as economically dangerous. It's the main topic of concern at Davos this week. Morally bankrupt and driven by irrational emotion. Critics will have a new manifesto this May in the form of George Osborne's upcoming book, the Age of Unreason, which will lament the decline of support for free markets, globalization, and liberal democracy. But a simple reiteration of liberal first principles is a flawed, unsatisfactory response to phenomena which the neoliberal era itself helped generate. 
The Big Bang and financial deregulation, the cult of privatization and outsourcing, the penetration of a market ethos deep into institutions such as universities, which were formerly seen as belonging to the public domain. All these features of the last 30 years, combined with Western deindustrialization, which was brutally accelerated in Britain during the 1980s, to render the daily lives of millions of Europeans far less secure. Gemeinschaft values, the well-being of places, communities, and institutions were forgotten, or rather never thematized. Such was the hold that liberal ideas had over our collective imagination. In Britain, for example, how did we fail to see the depth of the disillusionment in areas of the country, Stoke, Barnsley, Blackburn, which had been so central to the glory and prestige of Britain's industrial golden age, and whose useful purpose, it had been summarily decided, had come to an end? Well, we know about that disillusionment now. Across Europe, the far right is in danger of cleaning up when it comes to the affected politics of belonging, which is the Gemeinschaft dimension to the human condition. We urgently need to recover a lost sense of place and community directed to the common good, in which the Heimat looks after its own, but welcomes the stranger. To illustrate the scale and necessity of this task, I want to go on a quick tour, something of a whistle-stop tour. First to Cashina, a small town in Tuscany, then to the French cathedral town of Sens in Burgundy, and then on to Poland. Cashina has never enjoyed the glamorous status of world-famous neighbors such as Siena or San Gimignano. It hasn't got the mountains, it hasn't got the sea, it hasn't got the art. But in its heyday, it made some of the finest household furniture in Italy. For generations of newlyweds looking to furnish their new homes, a visit to Cashina was a rite of passage. Hardworking, close-knit, the town's politics were always firmly to the left. There's a small patch of green near the handsome 16th century clock tower, which presides over the main street. There, on that patch of green, communist mayors have erected numerous monuments to those who died fighting Mussolini and the Nazis. This was a proud left-wing town. But over the past 20 years, most workshops have closed their doors. Some were unable to compete with the likes of IKEA. Others were finished off by the 2008 crash. The Great Exhibition Hall, where the town's finely crafted wardrobes, sideboards and chairs used to be laid out for prospective buyers from all over Italy to inspect, became a supermarket. Then, from 2011, a new challenge emerged as refugees who had made the crossing from Libya to Italy's southern coast began to arrive in Tuscany. 
Two years ago, Kashina suddenly turned its back on seven decades of left-wing political tradition. Its new mayor is the 31-year-old Susanna Cecardi, a rising star of the right-wing League Party, which has become the dominant partner in Italy's new coalition government and has climbed to 36% in the opinion polls on the back of its slogan, Italians first. Salvini, the party's leader and Italy's deputy prime minister, has made Ceccardi one of his chief advisers. She's charismatic, confrontational, and usually dressed in a leather jacket and jeans. Ceccardi presents herself as the head of a kind of restoration project of the town where she grew up. Cashina people first, she likes to say. Her administration is implacably hostile to the African asylum seekers who have found their way to the town. She has, for example, cancelled a government-funded project to integrate migrants by helping them with accommodation and work opportunities. Those resources are needed for Kashina people, she told me. Kashinese first. As a town councillor, Cecardi campaigned against a project in 2015 to teach the town's children the lyrics to John Lennon's Imagine. Remember the lyrics? Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. A brotherhood of man. Cecardi told me she hated this song because it was communist thinking. And she's right to the extent that communism, despite Stalin, aspired to the universal, to world revolution and liberation beyond borders. But her true enemy is liberalism. The world without borders and without religion, what kind of world is that? Your identity is annihilated, says Cecardi. John Lennon's lyrics, for her, are part of the world which embraced the globalization that did for Kashina's furniture workshops and which welcomed migrants into the town. Both developments which disrupted Kashina's sense of Gemeinschaft. Cecardi particularly objected to the fact that this mass rendition of Imagine took place in Kashina's principal street as part of the town's Christmas celebrations. I want a world where we respect each other's religions, she said. I respect your religion as long as you don't invade my space and disrespect my values and my religion. But I want my Christmas songs and I want those people who follow another religion and don't want them to go and sing their own songs in their own country. Later in my interview with her, I questioned her about the fierce condemnation of Don Elvis a local priest attacked by the League over a project to bring asylum seekers to mass and put on a lunch for them with parishioners. How did the attacks on the priest tally with Christian values? Pope Francis has, of course, repeatedly called for migrants to be welcomed with generosity of spirit. I was surprised at Cecardi's answer, but perhaps I shouldn't have been. 
I don't give a damn about the Catholic Church, she said, before hurriedly correcting herself to describe it as a very important institution. Ceccardi's Christianity serves as a means of exclusion, not inclu inclusion. As elsewhere on the European right, it is being used as a cultural resource in a supposed battle of civilizations between the West and, among other enemies, Islam. More from Kashina's Culture Wars. The town's theatre once specialised in experimental productions, often with a social message, but with Chikadi's help, the actor and League supporter, Andrea Buscemi, became its president in August 2016 and changed the programme. Now it's standard Italian and European classics. Buscemi is now in charge of culture in nearby Pisa. He recently got into a row over the artistic merit of the city's famous Tutomondo mural, painted in 1989 on the wall of a Pisan church by the celebrated American artist Keith Haring. For Buscemi, the mural is an example of, a worse kind of example of politically correct art. Tutto mondo means all over the world. And Herring's work depicts different races reaching out to each other. In a polemical book entitled, I Want Pisa Back, Buscemi condemns it as utterly banal and has been accused of wanting to get rid of it altogether, though he denies that. In his book, he, he writes of a, a strange, suicidal tendency, pushing Europe and Italy not only to open up its doors to whoever it might be, but also to forget to safeguard its own culture. In the melting pot that follows globalization, I see a precise ideological design being realized, the taking away of particularities of place, turning us all into migrants without a homeland or borders or language. This type of talk is now the common currency of the emerging post-liberal European right, which aspires to the creation of a new Europe, reconfigured as a network of what, of what one might call Gemeinschaft states. In 2017, in Sens in Burgundy, I saw Marion Maréchal Le Pen speak during the presidential campaign which her aunt, Marine Le Pen, eventually lost to Emmanuel Macron. Maréchal, unlike Chekardi, is a devout Catholic, she recently set up an Institute of Social, Economic and Political Sciences in Lyon, and an account of a talk she gave to American conservatives in Washington give a flavor of what its ethos and intellectual preoccupations will be. Adopting a quote often attributed to Gustav Mahler, she observed that, tradition is not the cult of ashes, it is the transmission of fire. In Sons, her theme was the defense of a core Frenchness, endangered by three principal antagonists, Islam, globalism, and the European Union. As a working class National Front audience chanted, on est chez nous, we are at home, she excoriated free trade, open borders, multiculturalism, 
and an accompanying loss of sovereignty, all of which have combined to undermine the country's blue-collar workforce, muddle its cultural identity, and destroy its self-confidence. In heavily romantic language, she accused Emmanuel Macron of offering the soul of France and Sons up for sale. For Macron, she said, France should be seen like a startup business. For him, our country is not a nation, it's a space. You can come in, move out of it as you like, enjoying the generosity of our system. Me, I gaze in wonder at the Gothic cathedral you have here in Sens, the most splendid in France, and marvel at the majesty of Racine's verse. But all that doesn't exist for people like Macron. The only thing that counts is productivity, the economy, benefits. What is going on here? I now want to draw a bit on a remarkable paper by a French writer called Aziles Gouet, who is an anthropologist by training and a fellow of the Jacques Delors Institute in Paris. The paper is entitled The Revenge of the Nation, Political Passions in Contemporary Poland. It's the fruit of a period spent in that country looking at the roots of support for the governing and fiercely nationalist Law and Justice Party. As some of you will know, law and justice has been repeatedly condemned by the European Commission for undermining the independence of the judiciary, the civil service, and the media. Its attempts to strengthen already draconian abortion laws have led to mass protests. Along with Hungary, and increasingly Italy, Poland is now a senior member of an alliance of authoritarian illiberal democracies, the rise of which is worrying Brussels just as much as Brexit. Gouet identifies two strands to the law and justice project. The first she calls the social dimension, by which she means the redistributive policies pursued by the government. They are directed to what one sympathetic commentator has called Poland B, the other Poland beyond the big conurbations, the prosperous conurbations, relatively speaking, such as Warsaw, Krakow, and Katowice. They're talking about the medium-sized towns and farming regions, which are inhabited by people described by law and justice politicians as the losers of transformation. Areas that have lost their old raison d'etre and seen their relative wealth, influence, and corresponding self-esteem diminish in relation to the major cities. The redistributive record of law and justice is rather startling. The so-called active state strategy pursued by the party has led to the largest programme of social transfers in Poland since 1989. A minimum hourly wage has been introduced along with new housing benefits free medicine for the over 75s, a lowering of the retirement age and significant new child benefit payments. Last year, Poland made it to, to top spot in Oxfam's index of social spending aimed at reducing inequality. It's surely no coincidence that the Polish left 
has all but imploded as a political force. The second strand is what Gouet calls the distinctive ideological grammar and historical repertoire that shape law and justice's politics of identity. It's worth quoting her at length here. It's not just through the distribution of material benefits that law and justice appeals to the disenfranchised, to those who have been wronged, those who aspire for more, but also by giving them a stake in the national drama orchestrated by its leader, by offering them a shelter, a place in the world, a place of which they can be proud, a country that is theirs and theirs only. Theirs and theirs only. Poland has refused to play any part in the Brussels brokered attempts to deal with the migration crisis in Southern Europe. And as it keeps the barbarians at the gates, law and justice has cultivated a polarizing patriotic politics which posits a true, Pol a true Polish identity, transmitted like fire, as Marischal Le Pen might put it, from past experience and tragedy, a martyr's identity. The Kachin massacre, when 20,000 Polish officers were murdered by the Red Army in the spring of 1940, looms large. Associated now with the death in 2010 of President Lech Kaczynski, who perished in a plane crash. He was on his way to attend a Kachin memorial event. Catholic Poland is presented as the Christ nation, crucified over centuries at the hands of Tsarist Russia, Habsburg Austria, Hitler, Stalin, and the Soviet Union. Economic globalization and open borders and the insecurity they bring are simply the latest form of colonization and subjection, another imperial project, orchestrated this time not by dictators, but by bankers and liberals. <laughs> Those who act as the facilitators of this new crooked empire, which is sullying the nation's purity, are not true Poles. Gouet quotes the law and justice foreign minister who explained during a 2016 visit to the European Commission, we want only to cure our country of a few illnesses, a new mixture of cultures and races, a world made up of cyclists and vegetarians, quite bizarre that but who only use renewable energy and who battle all signs of religion. Poland B, Poland B's resentment and alienation has been brewing over decades. Economic restructuring after the collapse of communism laid waste to the agricultural sector and created an insecure low-wage labor market. The anger has now been gathered up into a romantic nationalist narrative in which the community slash nation is an innocent victim brutalized by external forces. Last year, an extraordinary Holocaust law was introduced by law and justice. It makes it a crime, crime, to accuse the Polish nation of complicity in atrocities committed by the Nazis. As Timothy Snyder, an American historian, wryly commented, sovereignty is the right to define yourself as innocent. At the Labour Party conference, 
of the autumn of 2005, Tony Blair summed up the psyche of an era which, though none of us knew it then, was coming to an end. The character of this changing world is indifferent to tradition, said Blair, unforgiving of frailty, no respecter of past reputations. It has no custom and practice. In the era of rapid globalization, there is no mystery about what works. An open, liberal economy prepared constantly to change, to remain competitive. The backlash I have outlined has been the revenge of what was left out of this vision, enacted on behalf of regions and places which it only served to destabilize and demoralize. The backlash has, in many places, taken an ugly, illiberal form. A restoration project that posits a lost community to which membership is restricted. A reassertion of the rights of the people, not the individual. A people that is constructed as white and culturally Christian. A people committed to one part of liberal democratic practice, the majority decides, but not to the liberal counterbalance, the rights of minorities and a tolerance of the other. Two generations worth of disdain for the particularities of place, custom and practice, the undervaluing of continuity and tradition, of Gemeinschaft values, has culminated in the emergence of a new breed of fascistic democracy, dedicated to the principle of us first, the Gemeinschaft state. So what can be done to build a better kind of Heimat? The sociologist and political economist Will Davis has written, if the political task right now is to construct a people from which a new common sense can be built, the question of how that can be done so as to include strangers and newcomers may be the most important one of the coming period. What might a different, inclusive politics of place look like? I want to end with a few tentative suggestions. The rights and dignity of the public sphere, in which the provision of the common good is a negotiated end in itself, must be reclaimed. A quarter of a century ago, in his book, The Decline of the Public, David Marquand made the case for, quote, a space protected from the adjacent market and private domains where strangers encounter each other as equal partners in the common life of the society, a space for forms of human flourishing which cannot be bought in the marketplace. Recalling the civic activism of the great Victorian cities, Marquand quotes Robert William Dale, the pastor of a Birmingham church in the 1860s, he quotes him as an example of the pride generated in the city by the new collective provision at that time of gas, water, clean streets, museums, and gardens. Describing the mood, Pastor Dale said council ward meetings assumed a new character. The speakers, he wrote, 
instead of discussing small questions of administration and economy, dwelt with glowing enthusiasm on what a great and prosperous town like Birmingham might do for its people. Great monopolies like the gas and water supply should be in the hands of the corporation. The profits of the gas supply should relieve the pressure of the rates. Sometimes an adventurous orator would excite his audience by dwelling on the glories of Florence and suggest that Birmingham too might become the home of a noble literature and art. Similarly empowering and properly financing local government in our modern cities and towns and encouraging new forms of public debate and participation in them, this must be the starting point of a politics of the common good rooted in place. There are green shoots visible. In the Northwest, the Labour MP for Wigan, Lisa Nandy, has founded the Centre for Towns, dedicated to a radical devolution of power to localities, to places where, says Nandy, there is a yearning to have much more control over the most fundamental things in life, family, home, work, community and the future. The loss of control, she goes on, is felt acutely in towns, but people's aspirations are no different in cities. Nandi is an interesting case. She is one of the few politicians to have recognised the signs of the post-liberal times and attempted to think through a creative response. She is the anti-Susanna Cecardi, if you like. A pivotal episode in her time as MP for Wigan was a lengthy battle to save a much-loved stretch of land known as the Bell, which has served as a green lung and a buffer dividing the working-class suburb of Kit Green, a former pit village, from nearby Oral. The Bell does not offer a particularly spectacular view, but it serves as a place for Sunday walks and fresh air and offers the quirky attraction of being the winter home to some of the donkeys employed on Blackpool Beach each summer. When Greater Manchester Council proposed to build houses and warehouses there, Nandy held a public meeting at the St Francis of Assisi Church in Kit Green. She was overwhelmed by the response. On a cold Thursday night, over 350 people came, said Nandy. There were so many people that some had to queue for 45 minutes to get in. There was anger, frustration, but also a hell of a lot of passion. That green belt protects Kit Green's identity. It stops Kit Green morphing into urban sprawl. But somehow this was about far more than the green belt. It was about a place's sense of itself. That's where the Brexit vote came from. People feel they are defending something that is in danger of being swept away. There was another learning experience for Nandy in a different area of Wigan, when the giant contractor, Serco, decided to house about 100 asylum seekers in a local Britannia hotel. A private company, interested primarily in a financial return, was entrusted by government with the fates of highly vulnerable people and the sociology of a town. The decision was not negotiated with local people, Nandy told me. 
No one ever sat down and said, we've got this crisis that we need to try and resolve. Suddenly, in an overwhelmingly white community, 100 mainly young African men were parked overnight with very little support and no notice to the people who lived there. It was a gift to the racists, and far-right activists soon began to take an interest. Nandi said, it was just handled so badly. Wigan people don't lack compassion. When there was an appeal for Syrian refugees, 36,000 bags of donations were raised in two weeks. But when there's no debate, there is a feeling that this thing has been imposed on you. In Manchester, at the Centre for Research on Sociocultural Change, a group of researchers have also been concerned with rethinking how power and decision-making happen in our communities. They have focused on what they call the foundational economy, defined as the provision of essential goods like health, education, social care, utilities, transport, prisons, and food distribution. Care workers, refuse collectors, bus drivers, and cleaners are doing the humble, underappreciated jobs that are fundamental to collective well-being. But the cult of outsourcing and the privatisation of the public sphere has meant that the delivery of these public goods has largely become a profit-driven, high-stress, low-pay endeavour. According to Professor Carol Williams, who leads the project, it's by beginning here with the activities that define the everyday lives of communities that a project to improve the inner lives of our towns can begin. In a study of the huge number of, hair, of care homes run by private equity funded providers, Williams and his fellow researchers found that an average 12% financial return was required to reward investors and service debts. Local authorities could borrow capital at a far lower rate, potentially enabling more care home places and fairer wages for underpaid carers. More green shoots, also in the Northwest, the pioneering Preston model in which public spending power has been redirected to local businesses and providers has been an early success story for this kind of approach. The underlying philosophy is that something should be owned and run for the benefit of all of us. This idea of the public good is the Gemeinschaft, the community dimension to our lives. It can be the wellspring of an expansive new vision of public well-being located in place of municipal progress and civic pride and a rehabilitation of local democratic control. The gamble must be that such a restoration of collective agency, purpose and voice will allow a generosity of spirit to flourish in places that have maybe been too bruised to show it in the past. That what Gouet describes as the ideological grammar of nativism can be countered by a version of the common good which goes beyond the markets and liberal individualism, but is outward-looking, confident, and not defensive. Towards the end of Heimat, one of Shabak's oldest inhabitants, 
the village grave digger, is in conversation with Hermann, Maria's youngest son. The grave digger repeats one of Shabbat's favorite sayings, and one of mine, actually. In heaven, they speak with the Hunsruck dialect. What we desperately need now is a politics, is a new politics of place, which reflects that kind of love and respect for home, which speaks to the world with a proud regional accent, but which is willing to listen to the stranger's story too.